My guest this week has worked in all genres of television, news, soap operas, science fiction, animation, sitcom. He's worked with some of the comedy's best performers, such as Terry Gard, Tim Stack, Drew Carey, Dave Thomas, Richard Lewis, and the legendary Don Rickles. He also worked for four years on my favorite sitcom, Night Court. Happy to talk to Bob Underwood. Hi, Ian. How are you? You were born in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, correct? I was born actually in Wilmington, Delaware, which but the family was in Harrisburg, and I guess Wilmington was just the nearest hospital. And do you remember what your first favorite television shows were? Oh, God. Uh, I haven't thought about that in a long time. My first favorite television shows. Uh, I was a I liked the goofy sitcoms in, in the early cities, you know, um, Get Smart and, um, you know, uh, Hogan's Heroes, things like that. And then always Star Trek. Uh, um, I watched almost everything. I mean, back then, you know, some of your favorite shows, they didn't even need to be the highest rated uh, to be very popular because the ratings for the highest shows were massively more than watch the highest rated shows now. So. You know, you look at shows that got canceled after two years, and you look if you look back at the ratings they had, they were they were getting like forty million viewers, but back then it wasn't enough. You know, so uh, you can remember a show fondly that you know went off the air after only two years. Yep, Star Trek is an example of that. Yeah, I, I loved I loved Star Trek. I, I I was not considered old enough to watch the first season, so I watched uh, I, I you know started watching it in the second season, and you know became a big fan. So. Um, my TV watching at the time was, you know, it was Star Trek and Get Smart and, you know, they, a lot of the detective shows I liked too. I was not quite as much of a TV junkie as a lot of the people that I ended up working with. Um, I liked it, but, you know, when I started working in television, I, I discovered that a lot of the people I knew were really obsessive about television. I mean, they, they, um, they, they, had wanted to work in television from the time they were little kids, and and I just more I, I almost say I fell into it, but I, I got the idea to work into it later on, and it wasn't something where I, you know, when I, when I would bump into somebody that I had seen on TV, I wasn't you know thunderstruck quite in the same way that they were because I um, you know my interests were a bit more diverse at the time. I was I was probably more focused on the news when I was a kid. I, you know, I watched a lot more news than a lot of the kids I, that I knew and. You know, I looked up to people like Walter Cronkite and, you know, um, and, and others whose names you wouldn't remember now, uh, Edward R. Murrow, people like that, because I thought of them as being, you know, really doing important work at the time. Huntley and Brinkley? Huntley and Brinkley, yeah, and uh, Susskind, and, you know, there's a whole bunch of names mm. that it would, it would just sound like nonsense syllables to people now. But, um, you know, and, and, and I was, you know, like probably the first time that I met anybody that I really was kind of non, you know, flustered by a little bit was Walter Cronkite when I ended up working at CBS after going there after graduation. But I, you know, got used to it after a while. And But I, I never had that, you know, it's like Don Rickles. I had seen him many, many times on TV and I thought he was hilarious. But, uh, you know, a couple of the other people I knew who worked on that show, they were really you know, kind of taking it back. Wow, this is the legendary Don Rickles. I said, yeah, he's, he's hilarious, but he's also just, you know, a funny, nice old guy, you know. Um, so, so that helped me a little bit in, uh, once I started working in television. What, what college did you go to? I went to uh, the University of South Florida, which is in Tampa. in the film department, but the film department, you know, actually collapsed while I was there. And uh, I ended up studying a lot about television, you know, in the meantime. So when I uh, moved to New York right after college, I started working, you know, pretty much pretty quickly in, in various television things simultaneously and in news and as a PA on, you know, like Broadway shows and things like that. And then, and then uh, CBS learned of the opening on a soap opera where, uh, you know, I, I had never... I had never actually seen soap operas except kind of playing in the background. My little sister would watch them. So I was kind of fascinated by them. I knew how, you know, powerful they were. People would, you know, just drop everything and run to watch them. And, you know, it seemed like a nice, cozy environment. You go there and there were all these, you know, fun people having a good time, a lot of job security. People had been doing them for decades and anticipated doing it lots, you know, for decades more. And uh, it seemed very appealing at the time. So uh, I, I, I segued into writing first uh, for the soap operas. And that was Rituals, or was that a different show? No, it was a, it was a show called Guiding Light, okay. uh, which was at the time the long 
longest-running fictional program on broadcast. It actually started out on radio before going to television, and um, it had been going, I don't know how many years at the time, but it, it, you know, it, it had run for like 70 years by the time it was done, which is a very long run. Yeah. When you worked, you worked at Radio City Musical? I did, yeah. Were you there when they did 9 of 100 stars? simultaneously at CBS News at the time. And so, it, it, you know, I was very young at the time, so I would often go days without sleep because I would work on the night shift and then, then go to Radio City. I worked there during the Grammy Awards and the Christmas show and the spring show. And, and I was there while they were doing Night of 100 Stars, but I, I wasn't there that actual night where, where everybody was there. Um, so then you left The Guiding Light and you went to Rituals in 84? Spanish? popular telenovela? chronological order, but the order of airing um, of some of the spec scripts, you were a Facts of Life episode? I did. I had actually written a spec Facts of Life, which they were going to produce, and then decided not to for whatever reason, and then basically assigned me another story or brought me in to pitch out other stories, and I don't really remember if the one that I did you know, was one that I pitched to them or somebody else pitched, but it was a nice experience, you know, um, and I did a episode of Charles in Charge, mm -hmm. and uh, I wrote a spec for Twilight Zone, which was uh, a the first revival, which they brought me in on while it was at CBS, but didn't actually produce until it, it then went to syndication a year later. So then how did you get the job in Night Court? I, uh, well, I had written uh, constantly specs. I was just obsessive, and I had an idea for writing a, a several ideas for writing a spec for Night Court. I, I had written a spec for Night Court actually a couple of years prior uh, when there was a proposed um, a, a writer strike was looming, and somebody had given me the idea that if you um, if you could get a script that they might use uh, before the strike, you could sell it. It's completely wrong idea, and that wasn't true at all, but I had it in my head, so I wrote, I think, like, four scripts in five days, and mm -hmm. one of them was a night court. Um, like I said, it was young and very, I, I could go without sleep at the time, you know, it's just, uh, 
that the, the creator of the show had actually read the script and thought it was lacking, which it was, but that it, there was some funny stuff in it. So when um, I, I say this backstory because it helps when I get to the later part, I, I was in in line to get a job on a show which is not even worth mentioning now because it's like I didn't went in and working on the show. And as I was waiting to hear, will I get the meeting? I was very anxious and just saying, well, should I write something else? And just in case. And my agents just sort of demollify me. Said, well, yeah, write something else if you want to. I said, I do a Cheers or a Night Court uh, or Family Ties. And they said, well, just knock out a Night Court. So I, I did. I I uh, I wrote a Night Court and got it to uh, Linwood Boomer, who was a producer at the time or just about to be a producer, mm-hmm. who got it to uh, Reinhold Wiggy, who was the creator of the show, and Randy liked it. They brought me in. We talked, and I just got hired uh, that same day. And uh, so I worked, I think it was the fourth season, but I was uncredited for most of the seasons because I was a, uh, a staff writer. And even though I had a couple of scripts in that season and a lot of my ideas, you know, a lot of my work showed up in it, my, my name doesn't show up in it that much, but I probably got landed more pitches that year than in any other because uh, I was young and just didn't have anything else going on. I just you know, spent all my time coming up with ideas for the show and scripts. Oh, well, well, I worked on all of the episodes in that in season four, and everybody did. I mean, oh. the, the thing about um, working on these shows is when they're, when they're room-written, they're written by a room full of people, basically every script is kind of gang-written by everybody, and uh, one person's name is on it, but, you know, that person is just as likely to have uh, an effect on a script that they're not credited on as on one that they are credited on. Um and that's just the way most sitcoms, and a lot of dramatic shows are written that way too. Everybody is sitting around and they're they're, they're beating out the story, and then one person is, is chosen to you know actually script it out. And obviously, that person is going to have a, a, a large influence on the the way the script turns out. But um, everybody else, uh, their footprints and their style will show up in it as well. You're credited with uh, first credit is one of my favorite episodes, Death of the Bailiff. Night Court um, on Facebook, a fan group, and they were, there was a, I'll, I'll shout when it measures 11, was like, I was like one of the few people who remembered the whole line that um, Art said to Bull that he thought was, and thou shalt have treasures in heaven. So, it's funny because, I, you know, now that you mention that, I, I flashed back to the moment when uh, I pitched that in the room as, you know, what, or, and it seemed so natural at the time. But um, we weren't sure that the audience would get it, so we scripted it out that he says that line, you know, Art says that line, and then, you know, they slowly repeat it to figure it out. And I think it was Arquette who told us afterwards that they were way ahead of us because the minute he said, I'll shot when it measures 11, I think the, the audience went nuts. And then we had this 30-second thing where we're explaining it all to people. And, you know, as John pointed out, it was totally unnecessary because the audience got it, but, you know, they were in the – you know, it's already scripted, so they're not going to stop and and not go forward. So that's it was an interesting memory. Interesting that you would point that out because it was a very specific thing that I recall from that week. And then I remember I was ten years old when I saw this. Uh, the Heart of Stone. It was just uh, two women in lingerie. I just remember that episode for that. Yeah, that that was that, you know it, it was funny because I, I liked I liked how funny that episode was, but it also it was also so broad. That uh, you know, some people I think at the time thought I was the the ultra broad guy on the show, but it, it was everybody. You know, it, it was just full of very racy jokes, and you know, uh, some of them were mine, but a great many of them were, were other people's jokes as well. And uh, you know, at the time I was almost a little embarrassed, you know, but then it was received so well, and then people liked it afterwards that I thought, okay, that's that's great. We did a good, you know, we we were not really trying to do anything that was multi layered in that episode, but we, what we did, we did very well. I, I have to say that. Yeah. And I always love when Harry Anderson would give his Harry speech, 
that would solve problem at the end. And you did a good job writing that too. Yeah, we, we always, um, you're reminding me now, like I'm going back in my memories. We always had fun with those, but it was also difficult uh, because, you know, we wanted to punctuate them with a joke. And, uh, you know, sometimes the joke at the end was not necessarily the best joke, but it was the one that summed up the, the theme of the show. Best of all, you know, um, and uh, I remember changing a lot of those as, as the week would one and, and trying different things. And so, sometimes we did better than other times, but you know, a lot of people... I remember at the time thought of the show as this broad burlesque kind of thing. I think John used the word burlesque at one point, and it was in kind of a way, but it was also, you know, I, I remember Ryan telling a story of being on a golf course once, and somebody said to him, "Oh, you, you have it easy over there. All you have to do is be funny." Or maybe it was somebody else who said this. I just know it was, it was a quote of one of the producers, and um, and he didn't say anything back because he just felt like, well, that, that's how they feel, and it's fine. But the truth is, we do a lot more than just be funny. I mean. When you're being funny, you know, when people are laughing at something, it means they're connecting to it on some level. Mm-hmm. And if it's about, you know, getting through some pain or getting or getting through some conflict uh, and you make them laugh, you've actually done something that is more difficult to execute than just a straightforward, you know, make somebody cry or, or make somebody angry about something, all of which I had, had to learn how to do when writing the soaps. And so tackling the same subject and making it funny it's actually a lot more difficult, but you don't realize that until you've had to do it both ways, you know. So we, we touched on a lot of serious things and a lot of the goofiest characters. You know, Dan Feeling is actually a very complicated character. Absolutely. You know, uh, and yet people enjoy him on a very simplistic level, you know. Um, and I guess that's one thing that makes shows like that effective. If You know, you if you can enjoy it without thinking deeper, that's great. But if, but if you are thinking a little deeper, you can enjoy it even more. Right. And you used Roz a lot. You were a lot of episodes about Roz, The Night Court Before Christmas, Pen Pal, Auntie Mame. This, this is a very good character that some of others uh, neglected. I loved the character of Roz. She was also a very complicated character. And for a while, somebody had, I remember somebody saying that, uh, that I was kind of the go to guy for Roz. And, and, and I wasn't sure if it was, you know, people were not as necessarily certain, like, because she wasn't the main character. It's like everybody wanted the Dan Fielding stories, whether, whether he's impotent or something, because you know it's going to be hugely funny. Uh, but I always, I also knew the name with Roz. I, I knew uh, that any story with her where there was a real dilemma for her would just be hilarious because I, I knew that she could pull off, you know, very complicated emotions and, and she could just nail anything that you would write for her. And once you knew her voice, it was, uh, it was a pleasure to do it. So, uh, yeah, I, 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 I have no problem being labeled as the, uh, as, as one of the premier Roz writers for the show. That's a great, it's a great character. I love the, you didn't write the episode, but the constitution episode, when she goes into diabetic shock. Oh yeah. Yeah. I remember that was, Yes, and it also showed Dan is uh, like a caring person who saved risked his life to save ours. Dan was very much a caring person. You know, it's like a lot of what was going on in Dan. Uh, you know, he he was funny because you knew underneath he was a caring person. A guy who genuinely didn't care would not be funny in that situation. You know. Um, I say that, and then somebody can easily say, "Well, what about Mr. Burns? You know, he's also funny, but he doesn't care." Uh, but but Dan, you saw him, you saw him struggle with things, you saw him feeling pain, you know, things that you don't feel from a cartoon villain character, you know. Right. Uh, yeah. So I mean, again, everybody would want to read the Dan episodes because because they were so well. But the truth of it is, we had a real um, a real great team of characters there. I mean, no matter who would get assigned to do a story for, um, you could make it great. I mean, um, it it was kind of funny because we had a a nice uh, procedure there where we'd start to pitch out a show before necessarily pitching it out so that one person wouldn't automatically be, um, you know, uh, protective of it. But then you could also see people, you know, see the lights come on in their faces as as you're pitching something that's really good. Uh, They're going, oh, I hope I get this episode, you know. But the truth of it is the characters were all so strong, and the situation basically allowed you to put any funny idea you would have into the show uh, that 
you know, it was pretty pretty easy comparably to do a funny and, and interesting episode. Not that we didn't do bad ones. We did plenty of bad ones. Uh, and, and I think most of the people that's connected with the show. I think Tom Reader had this great saying, which was, uh, you know, as you sit down to, to play out a series, your, one of your goals is just to do as few bad shows as possible. Um, also, uh, John Aston is a great uh, comedic actor, and you got to buddy, yeah, buddy, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's funny because one of my first uh, uh, scripts had, well, I think my uh, Facts of Life script had, um, I think it was uh, Sean Aston, oh, McK- Mackenzie, Mackenzie. Oh, okay, yeah, uh, and uh, Mackenzie, yeah, yeah, that's right, it was Mackenzie, and then I later ended up writing for for John. John a few times. He was one of those people that I bumped into often. You know, we're at the same agency, I think, agency APA on Sunset, and I would, you know, he would be in the elevator and just a really uh, self-effacing, fun person to be around. And, uh, and and so it was nice when I ended up working with him uh, on Night Court. Um, you know, he could just like like so many of the others, he could nail anything, and he had that that great look about him that you know you knew he was crazy, but he was also <laughs> gentle. Yeah, uh, Phil. Oh, Phil, yeah. I mean, this is a guy who, I mean, Will Ute, he, uh, like uh, John Aston, who's been on countless shows. I don't know what else Will has been on. He might have done some cop shows or whatever. But he's a very funny guy. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'd like to hear that he went on to do other things that I was just unaware of, but because he certainly um, had a lot of talent. I mean, he was just basically a day player when he came on. I mean, it's, Started with, we'll give him a line here, a line there, and the next thing you knew, he was a semi-recurring character with a with an important part of uh, and with an important role to play in stand. And you got to write the episode because I liked being able to explore where the characters came from. You know, it's like saying before, Dan was a, a tortured character, and you know, it was fun to explore the idea that you know he really was a guy with great intentions, but you know, he's got this this addiction, you know, this, mm-hmm. this sex addiction, which just really takes over your life. I mean, it was one of those things that you know everybody thinks of from time to time it's like oh my god it's like you you've got this girlfriend or whatever and and you can't think about anything it just totally messes up your thinking and, and i just the idea was extreme with dan fielding that he's so he's so uh into sex that he, he allows it to dominate his life and uh, you know it, it derailed him from his higher ambition and then the last one you wrote was to sleep no more which is a great episode where he defrauds the Phil Foundation so much that he literally cannot fall asleep. Oh, right. That's right. I remember that. Yeah, definitely. And and Will kind of appears like Banco's ghost, you know, right. uh, to him in, 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 the, uh, in the ceremony where he's uh, trying to pull off his scam. Yeah, that was great. I mean, uh, uh, I haven't thought of, I'm not somebody who goes back and looks at shows afterwards, but you're bringing back these memories to me just mentioning these... Uh, I mean, I watched Night Court from when I was, I guess, 7 to 15, so it's like half of my life at that time. Oh, wow, man. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you have been a part of it. Thank you. And then you, you uh, left after four years, and you went to a show, which I actually really liked, but it wasn't on for a long time, Good and Evil. That, if Good and Evil were done today as a streaming kind of show, it would be a huge hit. I, I remember being very frustrated and disappointed when they, when it was pretty obvious the show was not going to go beyond 13 episodes. We scripted uh, a natural kind of cliffhanger slash ending for the show. I mean, it looked like a cliffhanger because they were literally going to be hanging on a cliff at the end of it. Right. We also tied up a lot of the loose ends in a way that it, it, it could have and would have played, I felt, like a nice... 13 episode standalone series that, you know, is, you know, and that was back when nobody was thinking of doing things like that. I mean, they were doing them in England and in other places, but I, I remember having, a, we were having a conversation internally and kind of feeling like maybe this thing could get discovered in syndication or whatever, but they had other <clears throat> agendas going on. They wanted to move us to another, the, the crew to another show and they wanted to save some money. So they just kind of quit at 11 episodes. 
So the 11 episodes leave you in a place where if you watched them all now, you'd, you'd, have, you'd be left with the feeling of, oh, they never finished the show. But if we'd been able to do the final two episodes, it would have felt like that's how we intended to do it. It was a 13 and out. Um, so I, I think about that sometimes when I, when I look at the, the streaming shows now. Mm. And, and, you know, I look at them grappling with the idea, do we do we do each season so that it can stand alone or do we go increasingly towards the, you know, the, the cliffhanger and the, uh, you know, the, the, the carry you over into the next season. And sometimes I think people err on the side of going too much towards not presenting a complete uh, sort of story in a season. So that when you, and I see that, you know, I see it often where it's a pretty good show, but they don't get a second season or they don't get a third and the whole the whole package by itself doesn't stand alone as much as it would if it had been structured differently you know uh so every now and then i'm I'm reminded of good and evil almost more often than i am of any other show that i've done just because i'm constantly seeing that same thing play out um two questions about the show do you think that the protests from the visually impaired played a role in the cancellation because i remember reading it Um, and what's interesting is that, you know, what we, what we did with that character was actually kind of tame considered to what people were doing just a very short time after. Still, the, the kind of the old time really pushed to the limits of what was acceptable, you know, at that time. Uh, and I think some of the stuff we played very well. I mean, like sometimes when you, when you play the, use the word edgy, which is an old fashioned word now, but sometimes when you have limitations on you, you can't go too far. It, it forces you to be more clever than if you could just go all the way, mm -hmm. you know, and just be overly offensive. And that was a good example of a show that really kind of had it both ways. It, it was, it would touch on, uh, things that may feel offensive to some people. But at the same time, it was doing it um, in a way that was very clever. It's a very underappreciated show, in, in, in my view. I think it really deserved a better run, you know, um, and it's kind of a sad thing that it didn't, you know. And that was Susan Harris, right? Pardon me? That was Susan Harris? Susan Harris, yes. Yeah, Susan Harris created the show. And she created and Soap. She created Soap, which uh, also, you know, it's like, it's funny because when I went to work on Soaps, I knew more about soap opera from having watched soap than I had from actually seeing any soap operas. Right. And when I and when I got into the soap operas, I, I actually was able to relate to them initially because of the comic books I had read as a kid, you know, Spider-Man and things like that, where, you know, they could get very soap opera-like, you know, in terms of the relationships with the characters and the dilemmas that they had and the fact that the story would never end. So I, I would to relate to it that way. But I wanted to get back to what we were talking about in, in terms of the... Uh, you know the the outcry or, or the complaints from from people. Um, you know the character. I think it was Mark Lankenfield who played the blind guy. Mm -hmm. You know he was a, a real over the top kind of almost Marty Feldman sort of character, and he was. It was clear to us that he would have been just as insane and just as stupid, no matter whether he was cited or whatever. And um, whenever you make a joke, there's always going to be somebody somewhere to whom that joke is too close to home because most jokes come out of the release of tension. You know, it's something that would that would otherwise be sad and either you resolve the situation or you don't or it takes an unexpected turn. But if you look at anything that makes you laugh, uh, if you think about it for a second, you, you go, that was actually, you know, something sad or confrontational or full of conflict. Uh, and, um, you know, so anytime you make something laugh, even if it makes 99% of the audience laugh, there's going to be somebody somewhere to whom it's just getting too close to home. You know, um, I remember one time talking with some guys about a, about a joke and, and I'd had a character that was, um, um, abusing alcoholics anonymous, anonymous to get dates. Mm. And he had trouble except, you know, with it because he had people in the family and, and, you know, I later encountered people in my family who had it. So I kind of understood what he was talking about. But, you know, as, as, as I'm, as we finished that conversation, I, I passed by a TV that was playing a, um, a uh, 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 Simpsons joke, and uh, Simpson was working as uh, you know in an occupation, and uh, there was an, an accident occurred, and that accident it was very.
very much like an accident in which a member of my family had died years ago. Um, and, and it was so ironic to look at that and go, we just had a conversation how one joke was too close to home for him. And then I see a joke which is playing on a, on a hit show that is obviously too close to home for me. I, I, I couldn't laugh at it, but I could also see how it would be funny to most people. Right. You know, there's, there's no way to avoid... Um, there's no way to tell a joke that isn't going to be hurtful to somebody somewhere if they're forced to see it. And that's just something that, you know, you can't avoid. It's life, yeah. And, you know, it bothered me, though, because I, I always thought about good and evil whenever I watch Robin Hood, Men in Tights, because Mark uh, Blankfield plays the same character in as one of the merry, uh, he's a blind merry man named Blinken in that movie. Uh, and it's, he's doing the same character. So why was that? Like, because you know, it's Mel Brooks? They said, oh, it's a Mel Brooks, let him do it. Well, some people can get away with stuff. I mean, Don Rickles is a classic example. You can see things that if you put in anybody else's mouth, you would just say, oh, my God, that's, that's incredible. And there were many conversations when we were doing that show about how far to take it. And I remember one of the, one of the proposed solutions was that whenever he said something outrageous, see that other people are responding to it um you know badly like oh my god i can't believe he's saying that and the, the truth of it is that sounds great in theory but then when we saw it playing out there was this uneasy sense that maybe that makes it work but you can say these outrage things and a famous black person right. and that famous black person is just laughing his ass off falling out of the chair as is every other black person in the audience and every other white person and it's because they all know the context of it, they know that Don Rickles isn't really a racist, and they know that he's mocking these attitudes more than anything else. But when you put it out there, it, when you put it in the context of a story, it becomes harder to find that line of how do you of how do you make it work? How do you have people enjoy it? Right, because he's not playing Don Rickles; he's playing the character. No, the character. Playing another guy. And in person, what I found really interesting was that you, you know, we'd write these jokes for him, and then and then you would see Don Rickles himself. Uh, feeling, you know, like, oh my God, you can say this. It's like, uh, and I don't want to name any specific examples, but you know, he, he was he would basically have the same reaction that you would expect an audience member to have from the joke. And and I thought about that, and I wondered why it was that way. And uh, it was because we were putting it in the context of the story, and he's playing a real person; he's not playing a caricature. You know, we, we did actually ultimately find a good balance on that show, mm -hmm. a, a way that it worked, but it was late enough in the game, as like around episode six or seven, I think it was, where we all looked and said, oh my God, this, this really works now. Uh, this, this should work. This should be a hit. Um, and, but at that time, you know, it's like they were already looking for, um, already presuming the show would be canceled, I think. And uh, right. so that's another one where it would have been nice if we'd been able to do a few more years of that show because I had seen Rickles many times growing up on TV and I just thought he was hilarious and uh, he was also a very nice man in person so it was sad to see that he never got the hit television show I think he had had you know half a dozen or so or at least several and sitcoms and none of them ever went more than a season or half a season or whatever and he really was talented enough that I, that I wish he'd done it you know, it would have been great if he'd been able to partner with you know, Bob Newhart or somebody that he was really good friends with. I mean, not that Richard Lewis wasn't also very effective, but, you know, whatever for whatever reason, that combination didn't work immediately. It took a while to find it. And like I said, by the time we found it, um, it you know, it wasn't quite there. And, and, I, and I, you know, when I say it didn't work immediately, if you look at the first episode, it's probably very funny in the second and third episode. But I mean, in terms of what the network was looking for, and what the audience was responding to in, in enough way to keep it on the air. The, we, we hadn't quite found it, obviously. The pilot is on YouTube. And was the show really called Don Rickles Hates Richard Lewis? I never heard that. I, I know it was in development for some time. But uh, so there might have been some preliminary titles for it. Okay. But uh, I, that's the first I've heard that. Like when they say Woody Allen Winter Project, when he doesn't have a title thought of yet. Oh yeah, that that might have been at some point. It might have been like a temporary title for the show. And the funny, one of the funniest things on YouTube is like this forty minutes of him breaking people up. Have you have you seen those? Oh, I have not seen that, but I, I I've seen plenty of Don Rickles breaking people up. I mean, he would do it sometimes even on set. I mean, at the time, you know, Richard Lewis was was pretty popular, and and Don Rickles was very well known, and 
seemed like a magical pairing. And in some ways it was. It's just as everybody is second-guessing how far do you take things and what do you do, there's a, there's a lot of cooks in the pot and, and there's a lot of expectations from the network. I think at the time, the show was like after, um, after Married with Children, which was a huge hit. And, uh, you know, the network had certain expectations. And, and I, I think there was a history of no uh, show meeting those expectations. There'd be one show after another in that time slot. And, and you know, none of them ever hit what the network thought they should hit. Um, so we fell prey, I think, to a certain extent to that same, you know, level of expectations. Um, in between Good and Evil and Daddy Dearest, you did show Nurses. And you left that to do Daddy Dearest, or? No, I, I left that to do development um, at the same company, and I developed a, a couple of pilots, but you know, unfortunately, not they didn't get on the air. What was what was Nurses like? It, it was an, another one of those situations where they were trying to find the show and uh, trying to find the tone. I, I think it was how many seasons it ran for. But, um, it ran three. I think a lot of it had to do with Empty Nest and uh, Golden Girls in the time slot. Yeah. yeah I mean, it, it, it was, it was uh, you know, a good show for what it was. Uh, I, you know, I don't, have, you know, if, if, if I were to look at scripts and think about it more, a lot more memories would come to the surface. Mm -hmm. But it's just not one of those that I've thought back on that many times. Um, you know, it, it was... Uh, it was a decent show. There were some good people on it. We we came. Well, we did the best we could, I think, to, to come up with good stories for it. Um, but uh, there too, it may have been. Are, are you trying to get the same audience for that of the Empty Nest? I think it was between Golden Girls and Empty Nest, if I'm correct. Um, the first season. Or, yeah. Yeah, something like that. And uh, you know, both those shows had a different tone to them. I, I you know, there was there were some things where we kind of carried over a theme. I remember, you know, you're making me remember now. The hurricane episode? We, we, did, we had hurricane episodes, and I think there was an, an, another episode where, you know, it was just basically a full moon over Miami, and everybody was acting strange because of the full moon. Uh, you know, we were tying themes together where they had a similar theme in Golden Girls and Emmy Nest and in our show, because I think they were all set in Miami. Mm -hmm. And um, so we did some, you know, little crossover things. Um but there, I, I don't. There wasn't a, as much um, uh, conversation between the staffs of the shows as there might have been, you know, right. to make that happen on an ongoing basis. And honestly, if I were on Golden Girls, I don't know that I would want to. I would have wanted necessarily to, you know, do that much crossover in Nurses, which wasn't as successful. Didn't have quite as, uh, you know, part right. of the following. Um, you know. Anytime you get a bunch of good people together to do a show, there's a good chance you can do a number of funny episodes. But uh, when you want to find the kind of magical synergy and chemistry that they had on Golden Girls and that we had on Night Court, it's, it's a tough thing to pull off. You right. know, even even the best people can't necessarily do it, especially when you throw in there the, the expectations of the of the networks and the time slot and the competition. You know, somebody might just have a show that that's more popular on the other on another channel that uh, you 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 can't beat up. And of course, that's not as big a deal anymore. You know, you don't have to worry about um, you know somebody missing your show because there's something on simultaneously. Most right. shows are either streamed or you know if they're on the broadcast networks, people can watch them anytime. You know, and that really you know it's become less like uh, an appointment thing and more like you know the old magazine subscriptions. You the show is available to you from from this day on, and you can watch it anytime you want from that point on. So shows and stand on their own a little bit more. It's, it's a very interesting time in television. Hmm. When uh, Kevin Kelton was here, he talked about Boogie's Diner. and uh... Yeah, I, I did an episode of Boogie's Diner, too. Uh, I, it was funny because uh, they had initially talked to me about moving there, uh, and it was in Canada, which would have intrigued me a lot if I'd still been single at the time. You know, But I at the time, I had... Uh, I had gotten married and I had a, I think at that point I have five kids now. At that time, I think I had, uh, my wife had had three when we got married and so we had a baby and it was just the idea of going to Canada to work didn't, didn't make sense. But instead I did uh, an episode for them and uh, that was a fun experience. I mean, I, I never actually saw the episode, 
but uh, I had read the scripts and uh, the characters seemed pretty um, clearly defined, and I, I couldn't tell you now what, what the story was, but it was fun writing. And um, how was working with Kirk? Well, I only did the one episode of Kirk, and there were a lot of nice people on the show. Um, it, it was funny, the Kirk episode was one of the... You reminded me, because um, I looked at the credits right before we talked, and uh, I, I remember writing the episode and not really uh, being involved afterwards, but I had a, I remember hearing that some, somebody was not happy with the script when it came in, and then when I saw the show on the air, it changed almost not at all. So I thought, well, I, I, either I heard it incorrectly or, um, or they changed their minds or whatever. So it's one of those experiences where it was fun writing it, but it's kind of colored by this this odd mystery as to why somebody wasn't happy with the script. And then the, the show that was on the air was what I wrote. Normally, if they're not happy, you expect them to rewrite it a lot. You'd see something entirely different, you know. Right. And simultaneously, I had done a spec for some other show, which I can't even call. It sometimes happens. It's doing for when they were right. Social studies. Um, but social studies, I was like the co-exec or something on that show. Um, I was there for the whole run, and that was a nice example too of, of a show where we met. Uh, we were on after some hit show. I forget what it was, and. Um, we had meetings level and we had a certain amount of audience interest and handled us in because uh, they weren't happy. They placed us with got essentially the same ratings. Um, and I don't know what happened after that, but it was a good example of, um, you know, the expectation for your rating versus what you actually get has a lot to do with what they consider the show to be a success. And of course, uh, I don't know what the ratings were for the show at the time, but they were probably higher than a lot of the shows you see now. I mean, I'm amazed when I look at the, you know, the projected viewership of shows that appear to be $10 million an episode um, budgets. And they say, well, it had 900,000 viewers last week. And say, oh, my God, how can you possibly afford that? But, of course, it's a different model now. People are paying for things. And, and if somebody's going to pay $180 a year to get Amazon or something, and, they're, and a large part of the reason they're watching it is because they like this show or that show, then, then it's worth it. You know, you can... Um, you can you can have a high budget show for a, a real and uh, it. Social study. I didn't watch when it was on. I was in college. I don't remember it. But I just so Julia Duffy. She's great. She's so hilarious and a really nice person. Uh, I I regretted not being able to do something else with her. And there too. I mean, the show Bonnie McFarlane was very funny. Uh, there, we had a lot. We had several kids that were very funny. I mean, they're adults now. They've gone on to do movies in some cases. Um, yeah, that show had a lot going for it, and it was just bad that it didn't uh, didn't go further. And uh, you worked on uh, Nightstand. Nightstand, that was a funny show, yeah. Very low-budget show, and um, just, uh, you know, uh, Tim Sack is a hilarious person, uh, and his character, Dick Dietrich, you know, mm -hmm. just, uh, he just started talking and make you laugh. I mean, he's playing almost anything he plays, but that, I think that may have been the perfect character for him. Were you there when he was on Night Court? I was for several episodes. He was a semi-recurring character. He didn't always play the same character. Right. We had him as the same character a few times, and then we had him as different characters other times. But he was definitely somebody that we would go to for, uh, you know, whenever he was available and when the, when the story worked. Yeah, and he, he worked a lot with Phil Hartman, you know that? Yes. Oh, yeah, Phil, Phil is a funny guy. Yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, everybody who worked with Phil will tell you he's funny, you know. Yeah. He was funny. I mean, it's, it's sad how he passed so early, you know. And um, on Nightstand, Larry Strother and Gary Murphy were there, correct? And Howard Stern had something to do with that, or it was just after his show on E? I heard uh, a number of the guys on the show had worked for Howard Stern. Uh, I never met Howard Stern myself, uh, so I don't know if he was connected to the show in any semi-official capacity or as a you know part of his production company. But uh, I, the name Howard was constantly being spoken in the room because you know, people were always talking about what he said that day and talking to him on the phone. It seems like a lot of them were in constant contact with him. 
you worked with uh, one of my favorite uh, comedy actors, Dave Thomas, on the show The Wrong Coast. actually deal directly with Dave Thomas. Yeah. I mean, he, he was there. Uh, he, he did voiceovers, you know, after, after I had, uh, started the show and, and, you know, he came aboard, but, but I love Dave Thomas. He's a hilarious guy. You know? And then the first thing that you did, was this the first thing besides the telenovela quackers you did for another, uh, co- country? I did. I've done a lot of work in other countries, and that was something I did while I was there doing a job for one group of people. They said, "Well, somebody they need some help on this uh, on this uh, cartoon." So I went over to Moss Film Studios and met with them, and um, and I helped. I, I don't know how much of what I did actually ended up in the in the movie. Um, it was a a weird situation where they were looking to do rewrites, but as I when I went to see them, they had fully executed um, scenes, you know, with not just animatics or not, and, or not just storyboards, but, you know, fully animated with the color and everything. And I'm like, well, well, how much of this are you actually going to rewrite? And, and, and it was kind of, uh, it was a Chinese and Russian co-production. Right. So I, I think it was one of those situations where there was a lot of, um, there was some second guessing late in the process. And um, some changes late in the process. Um, so that was a. I was not involved for very long on that. It was just one of the things that ended up getting made um, because it was that close to production in the first place. Uh, you know, it's funny. You can work for for a long time on something that ends up disappearing because it's just a pilot or whatever, and then you can work for a short time on something that because it gets made, you know, it's there on your IMDb list, and uh, people think it was a bigger part of your life than it actually was. Right. Um, could you just tell a quick story about trying to uh, and successfully um, doing Married with Children in Russia? I only uh, there too. I worked only briefly. I, I did a lot of things in Russia, and uh, after I had worked in Russia, uh, the people at Sony uh, they got an they got an order for more episodes uh, of Married with Children because it was so popular in Russia that. Um, they had run out of Married with Children episodes to adapt, and they were writing new episodes. And I wrote several stories. Uh, I thought that one of the, one or more of them had been produced, but it, I, I, at this point, I don't know for sure if any of them actually were. Uh, I certainly had some ideas that I thought were funny. And, uh, I remember writing one in which the um, Al Bundy character, the, the Russian version of it, was Gina, uh, uh, it was... Um, uh, hired to be a spy or thought he was going to be a spy. I forget exactly what the story was, but it was very funny. And, and I, I was talking with a Russian friend recently, and I mentioned that episode, which I thought had been produced, and she said, no, I don't think they actually did that episode. Mm-hmm. So, so, what, so what I did for them, I don't even know what's been actually made into that show. Again, I haven't, it's one of the situations where I wrote it. I did my, I did my work, and I, you know, they don't automatically send you the episodes when you write for television. Uh, you know, it's like go for it, please, diner. Nobody ever sent me a a, a, a tape or, or or at that point it would have been a VHS. So here's your episode. So yeah. basically, sometimes you have to hunt them down if you want to see them, and sometimes you just end up never doing it and never seeing what you. Um, that was a job that I did in. Uh, I, I did a lot of consulting over the last dozen years, or, or in between Broncos and. Uh, uh, some of the film stuff I've done recently, and I, and I wasn't really that uh, concerned with getting credit on things. In retrospect, I should have been to make sure that my IMD page was expanded more. But that was one of those situations where um, I had consulted with uh, these people in in Russia and in in Uzbekistan on a couple of projects. One was set during the blockade of uh, St. Petersburg during World War II. It was a nice story. I hope they do it eventually. And the other was this. Uh, story, a very good story that they had before they were uh, a guy who works for an anti-terror squad, and he becomes increasingly um, concerned and ultimately convinced that his brother is, uh, his estranged brother is one of the terrorists, and, uh, you know, how to deal with that. So they brought me to Uzbekistan, and I was mostly uh, kind of what they call running the room, you know, uh, going through the process sort of simultaneously teaching people there how we in the U.S., you know, uh, craft a story. 
and at the same time using as example the story that they're creating. And it just as it happened, they ultimately ended up making the movie. So, mm. so that was a nice experience. I did not, uh, I was not there for any of the production, and they were doing something I haven't seen. I have spoken with those people, and I'm still in contact with the director and 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 the producer. And um, several times they've said, "Well, we'll get you a, we'll get you a." Um, uh, a link to the movie at some point and I just haven't pressured them. They probably had a link ready and I just haven't uh, pressured them to do it. I, I, up until the, the coronavirus, I would see them periodically if I went to like the Berlin Film Festival or Cannes or something and they would always be there and it's always nice to, to reconnect with people. Uh, but usually they've got a dozen things going on and, and they'll say, oh, we'll get you this link and you know, they're in the middle of five meetings. Uh, I was told that the film was successful in Uzbekistan and, and people enjoyed it quite a bit and it was their first sort of big budget um, Western style film and they're planning to do more. Um, that was a very interesting time because you know you could see how the, they were building a film industry from just you know the rudimentary facilities they had at the time. They were, it was a very ambitious thing they were pulling off and I'm told that they really made great inroads there. You know? the, the, the thing I like about working abroad with people is that you really become more and more aware that People are the same everywhere, especially when you talk to people who do film and television shows, because you instantly fall into a rapport with them. They're all speaking the same language and, and loving the same movies and having the same clothes, and they've all seen The Godfather as many times as you have or whatever. And, you know, even though you're speaking different languages and you grew up in different countries, you have as much, you have probably have more in common with somebody who does the same profession you have in another country than you might have with somebody down the street from you who speaks the same language, grew up in the same place, but it's just chosen a different path. You know, film industry people are like the cousins you never knew you had when, when you're, when you're working in that industry. Right. And uh, your last quarter is the last resort, uh, Stan Lee. And now, was that a movie that got made? Because I couldn't find anything else about it. It had not been made yet, so far as I know. Uh, it, it was on track to be made quickly, uh, I was told initially. And um, there was uh, some internal machinations, or, or uh, not, that's not the right word, there were some internal shifts in, in the, uh, the, the companies, the own company, and everybody had signed off on it, so far as I knew. And we're happy to go ahead, but then one of the actors dropped out for one reason or other. There was there was a point where you know there were um, people leaving the industry, and it was just a turbulent time, and that, that ended up getting put on the back burner. Um, but as as I say this, for all I know, somebody is moving it into production. No, it hasn't been produced at this point. The idea was, uh, in my view, to hope to produce it as something that could be. Um, simultaneously both Chinese and worldwide because the main character even though she was conceived as a uh, woman from you know a small town in New Jersey she could be anywhere I and mean, the idea is that she's inherited this uh, uh, resort out in outer space and you know in the eyes of those people uh, she's an earthling she's not she's not an American or a Chinese or whatever so her nationality uh, is not important uh, is very funny script, a very good idea, very, very possible to be a franchise. Uh, so I'm hoping much that, uh, you know, it will move forward at the moment. I don't know if it's of any immediate plans to produce it. Oh, I thought maybe it's something to do. Want to. I'm sorry. I thought it had something to do with maybe Stanley dying. No, no, actually it was written, um, you know, it's one of those situations where, uh, by the time it was purchased, uh, it, it's kind of a sad situation. I had worked with Stan on and off for years. I mean, we first talked about that project, uh, 1997 or 98, mm. I think, um, and revisited it several times. Um, and it initially was going to be a sitcom, you know, uh, literally we I remember looking at the notes and seeing that we were talking about Shelley Long, you know, to play the initial part. And, uh, and then as, um, and funny, at the time, there were no big science fiction um, space things on the I, I think that literally the year we did it, they re-released the Star Wars movies, and there was rekindled interest in that. So initially, we were thinking of it as, as sort of a British, uh, you know, uh, sitcom, uh, you know, like um, uh, Trucks Can't Together. Faulty Towers in Outer Space? 
Yeah, so th- that was one thing. We, that was one thing we called it actually. Faulty towers in outer space. And uh, so I, uh, going back to my original notes, <clears throat> we were thinking of uh, uh, John Cleese kind of character who basically runs this hotel and he's being squeezed by a quote Donald Trump kind of character mm-hmm. who's trying to shut him down. And of course, that was when Donald Trump was just a hotelier, you know, and and a real estate guy. Um, and it, it evolved as um, more uh, big budget science fiction shows were, were being created to be a, a bigger budget sort of you know thing where, where we're really creating uh, a world in outer space and, and it's a live action thing with big budgets and, and the tone of it was very uh, you know it was just a you know, much bigger thing it wasn't it wasn't all based on you know dialogue and people trying to one-up one another and to, to you know, close down the hotel or whatever and when Guardians of the Galaxy was released, you know, I remember having conversations with them that the tone we had gone for was probably a lot closer to Guardians of the Galaxy than, you know, it had initially been as, you know, Cheers in Outer Space or Faulty Towers in Outer Space. And so then, you know, um, I went back to the unfinished script we had and finished it up and, uh, and then people bought it. I mean, this is, this was like 20 years after the fact. Um, so it's a very much a, a favorite project of mine because I've revisited it so many times over the years. I remember uh, when uh, Stanley's um, uh, he had an internet company that crashed and burned. You know, the partner was doing you know things that uh, were very uh, nefarious, and uh, and the and the thing bombed. You know, the whole uh, the whole internet project bombed. I remember visiting Stan, you know, he was really kind of at his lowest point, and we went back and looked at this and, you know, revived it, and, and uh, I think somebody at Nickelodeon had expressed interest, and thanks to her, we got interested in it again and uh, made it into a bigger budget kind of thing. Anyway, uh, I, I sure hope they do that, because I think it could be a, a, you know, not just a one-off, but a whole franchise, keeping my fingers crossed. Yeah, yeah me too. Um, when, you were t- when you were describing it earlier, I was thinking that, Don, John Larroquette could have played either part. The, the... Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, there's almost nothing that John couldn't play. You right. know? It's just it, people respond to him better when he plays the larger-than-life character. Oh, yeah. I mean, at the time, I, I'm sure that Larroquette was on our list as as the guy running running the um, – no, I don't want to get too much into the premise because I don't know how much no, – right. rather I keep secret there. There is a guy at the center of the story who is very much a, a scam artist and an opportunist and you know just a hilarious a hilarious central character and then you have the woman who comes in and runs the the, uh, the the resort for him even though she's basically the the, 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 uh, the majority owner um, and so it's a great dynamic yeah it would have been great for for like John and you know at the time Shelley Long or um, and the uh, and the Amy's over for something. A lot of other yeah. uh, can make it a, yeah. the, the people were not looking for that kind of a thing. Right. It was really considered an, an oddball sort of pitch. And you know, it, it's funny the way things change. I remember um, at one point wanting to pitch something that was science fiction oriented, and there was literally nothing on the air that was science fiction oriented. And and the executive I was talking to you know, seemed to feel like it never was coming back. It was almost like the Westerns, you know, right. that, that we were never going to see anything like this again. And, uh, you know, I remember me and one of the others saying, but, you know, there's such an audience for the stuff that's gone off the air that uh, we feel like anything, even if we didn't do a good job, would probably find an audience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, I remember thinking back on that meeting years later and saying, not only were we right, we were, we were, we were only aware of 1% of how much we were right. You know, and now when you see the, the proliferation of science fiction stuff on the air, I would have, I would have never been bold enough to say at the time that it would be as big as it is now. Yeah, maybe they were worried that they'd, they'd have Quark on their hands. Oh yeah, Quark. God, that goes way back. That, that was Richard Benjamin and, uh, yeah, Buck, I mean. Buck Henry made it. Buck Henry, and uh, you've got Richard Benjamin, a very funny person, and Buck Henry, you know, one of the best writers out there. And, you know, it's a fine line. I, I don't remember seeing that show. I just remember what people said about it. And um, sometimes when you're doing space uh, parodies, it um, it's a little harder to pull them off because what you're doing is, is not really realistic to begin with. 
Right. You know, so you're parroting somebody else's fictional version of something. It's not, it's not quite as easy as, uh, you know, looking uh, parroting a Western, which Mel Brooks did excellently with Blazing Saddles. But then when I saw Blazing Saddles recently, it didn't hold up to me as much as um, Young Frankenstein does. And I showed Young Frankenstein to my kids, and they were just barely aware of how, um, you know, monster movies were done in the 30s. I mean, maybe had seen clips of it, but they laughed constantly. It worked on every level, still held up perfectly, you know. Um, and so parody is is a delicate thing. I, and, you know, look at Mel Brooksen, who's a very, very funny you know, person in many ways, but the space parodies that he made, I, I didn't think worked as well as those did because you know when you're talking about monster movies that was the genre he knew and grew up with and when you're talking about space movies that was something he saw you know later in life and you know realized that there were things he could make fun of but i mean and somebody else could say oh i thought his space balls was better than any of them so it's, it's a very subjective thing right um well thank you for talking to me and i would check out uh, the uh, blo bloopers from Daddy Dearest, about they're about fifty minutes. It's it's really funny. Oh, they're available on YouTube. Yeah. Yes. Okay, I will check that out. That'll certainly take me back. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Take care. Bye. You too.